Um, I don't know if you can broadcast this, but I told him to go and stick his own head up his own ass. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, 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 um, and I said terrible things to him because I thought it was my friend. <laughs> you know. Hey, David. Hey, Amy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome back to our pod. Yes, welcome back, everybody. We missed you and I've missed you, Amy. I've missed you too. It's been a a long time since not chatting. I know. We kind of took a break for the holidays, Mm -hmm. but boy, do we have a great first episode. We do. A really great episode. Before we talk about that, though, I wanted to thank you for my holiday gift. Oh, I I was so excited to send it. Okay. And thank you for my holiday gift. Let's say what we sent each other. Okay. So Amy sent me a fried clam kit from Woodman's of Essex in Yay! Essex, Massachusetts, which is where the fried clam was originated. And the one and I had pint after pint after pint after pint, four pints, which means two quarts, of delicious fried clams. So I really encourage anyone who loves fried clams yeah. to go to Woodman's and to send this out because this is not, we're not being paid. This is not an right. advertisement. No. I was shocked at how good it was. I really was. It's really cool. So you get the clams, you get the stuff to make the coating, you get, it's just, it has everything you need. The condensed milk, you get their tartar sauce, you get the cutest little pint boxes, the red and white striped pint boxes. You just, (laughs) you sit there and you go, I feel like it's summer. It was great. Yeah. At Yankee Magazine, we do these food awards every year where we highlight New England made Mm -hmm. foods. And this one was a winner. And I knew you'd love it because you love fried clams. Meanwhile, I was the lucky recipient of this incredible basket from Portugalia Market in Fall River Mm -hmm. filled with David's favorite uh, Portuguese ingredients, including this incredible spice blend that he created um, and just olive oil and tomatoes. It was so lovely and also delicious uh, salt cod and sausages, Sausages. which we have enjoyed so much. So thank you. And then, yeah, normally the gift basket, which they sell every year, would have my cookbook, but I believe you have have one. If not one, you have two. (laughs) So we didn't include that in there, but oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad the family enjoyed it. Yeah, we really So I want to talk about food news. This is really kind of shocking to me. Shocking, Ah. I say. Ronzoni is discontinuing making pastina. This is a heartbreaker for me. So if you don't know what pastina is, it's little tiny, tiny pasta, little little bits, little stars. Right. The different shapes, but but most people know it as stars. Growing up in my family anyway, this mm. was the equivalent of matzo ball soup. When you are sick, you would get a bowl of my grandmother's stock, which she made in big batches and gave to my mom, and mm. you'd have the pastina in it. And it was like, it was the thing that made you better, right? You yeah. ate this, it was nurturing, it was everything. I'm really sad about this. Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't had pastina in a very long time, but growing up, it's the same way my grandmother made chicken soup with little stars. Yeah. But it's also had potatoes in it too, where Portuguese, we need right. as many, much starch as we can get. <laughs> but also, when I was bored, which was often as a kid, and I uh-huh. was the youngest out of everybody, so I spent a lot of time with her, she would take some dried pastina out of the box. Mm-hmm. She'd give me a needle and thread. There's a little hole in right. the middle of the star. I would thread them and make like little bracelets or little necklaces made out of pastina stars. And I forgot about that until I realized that they're discontinuing it. Oh, it's so God. sad. Well, Barilla still makes it. So that's it's not like mm-hmm. you can't get it, but Ronzoni was a. That's what um, we all grew up with, yeah, was Ronzoni. Yeah, yeah. That's what we grew up with. And right. It's right. so sad. It it's is. so sad. 
So that's our little food news. People are speaking out. Maybe oh, it'll yes. come back. There's even these petitions going out right. trying to get them to bring it back and not stop All it. All right. So well, we'll see. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Yeah. David, I have a question for you. How do you feel about New Year's resolutions? I hate them. I don't make them anymore because I, I always usually fail by the end of the month. Well, why are they a source? It's like they're they're just a source of punishment and of deprivation. I, I don't... I agree. I think they only work if they are made with some element of maybe kindness and fun. Uh, yeah, and a, yeah, and fun. Because mm-hmm. so, usually New Year's resolutions are about not doing something. I am not and going shame. to curse. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes, I'm not going to curse. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to do something. And as creatures, we don't like to be told what not to do. We want to be told what to do. Right. So how about the idea of I'm going to add more fun to my life. I'm going to have one night a week that's date night. Right. It's something to look forward to. Yes. So, I don't know. Did you yeah, make something, any? No, because they don't yeah. they never work. I I think what I like to try to do is maybe set an intention. Um, intention. you know, here's mm-hmm. something I would like to have more of in my life. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll maybe set like a, I want to finish up a cookbook proposal that I'm working mm-hmm. on. So, you know, there's that intention. I do have an intention of being a tidier cook because oh. um, I do feel yeah, some shame about that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, uh, me too. I me uh, too. our spouses have t- tattled They've on us. They've shamed and- <laughs> us publicly about so how messy we are. I am cleaning more as I go. That is an intention. But mm-hmm. meanwhile, we have some help with this, right? Yes, we do. With our today's guest. So our today's guest is Jamie Oliver, the oh wonderful chef, cookbook author, activist. And he has a new book called One, which is all about simple one pan cooking. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, oh, I've heard that idea before. Right. Not really with this. The stuff that he does in this book, he has maximum eight ingredients. I he love that. A, and there's a picture of the ingredients next yes. to the ingredients column so you can visually see what you need. I and love that. And then there are the steps, you know, that are photographed. So, and then it's eight ingredients and, you know, he has everything from, he says, healthy, there's indulgent, there's pastas. There's a lot of different things. I think it's a very interesting book and I think it'll do very well. But Amy, what did you think of the interview? I'm very curious. Oh, I thought it was much deeper and more meaningful Mm. than I thought. And here's one thing that I didn't get a chance to say to him in the interview, but that as I'm listening to him and all the things that motivate his work and the ways he found his style as a cook, Mm. he represents to me a brand of new masculinity that is the future. Because that old, he he really came up in that very toxic kitchen, militaristic, hyper macho kitchen world and celebrity chefs who were just jerks and, Mm. and used their celebrity as an excuse to be a jerk. He is, is is looking for like this gentler, more intuitive way of doing things. And mm. I love that. And I think yeah. that's why people love him so much and buy his books and watch his shows. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, you were saying like, I thought we might be more jokey and light. Yeah, I thought I'd be having a like a grand old time and laughing yuck, yuck, like when we yuck. were with Paul Hollywood. And what was interesting, I found myself getting lost asking questions because I was so fascinated by what he was saying that I lost track of what I needed to ask next. But I think we should keep the interview exactly as it happened. Very, very little editing because I think this is an important episode and a, a little different for us, but I think a lot of people can benefit and will enjoy what he has to say. Yeah, it's a great listen. Make yourself a cup of tea, settle in, and here you go. Welcome to the show, Jamie. 
Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I've never done it before. <laughs> well, we're thrilled. So we want to get to your new book, Jamie Oliver One, which actually comes out today. But can we take a look back on your career? Now, you began cooking at age eight and ultimately ended up as the chef at the Steen River Cafe. Yeah, they were the days. Good times. It was my second job in mm-hmm. London. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I first started out actually in a restaurant called the Neil Street Restaurant, cooking with Antonio Coluccio and right. Gennaro Contaldo, and then moved to the River Cafe, Ruth Rogers and Rose Gray. Kind of the Alice Waters of the UK, mm-hmm. really. Incredible women, strong women. They weren't taking any rubbish from Michelin star chefs that came to work with them. They got, <laughs> yeah. quick, they got quickly sorted out through logic and determination. They were amazing women, really. They, they taught me such a lot. And as you know, in, in traditional restaurants, for lots of good reasons, there's protocol and structure mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. you do and don't do. And then it's that same structure and protocol that can be like, boring and tiresome mm-hmm. and, you know, more quarterly menus, monthly menus. And yeah. our menus were changing twice a day, every mm-hmm. day. Lit- I mean, literally, wow. we'd be going into service wow. and, you know, some fishermen would turn up with a box of sardines mm-hmm. and there'd be That's some it. poor pot washer <laughs> filleting, you know, <laughs> sardines and they'd be on the menu then. Yeah. So nothing waited for the food and sort of chefs wouldn't have done that. Really. Right. It, mm-hmm. took, it took the girls to do that, sort of more of a single-minded maternal view on cooking, which was incredibly potent and powerful and important for me mm-hmm. as, as a chef. Right, mm-hmm. right. So while you were at the River Cafe, you were sort of scouted like a model walking down the street, being scouted by a model <laughs> agency. So you were approached, right, to do TV when you were there. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, yeah, sort of. Um, uh, first of all, the, the night that they were filming in the kitchen, was after about three weeks of filming in a kind of self-made studio next to the restaurant. They just wanted to get a little reportage Mm -hmm. of of what's going on in the restaurant, a little bit Mm -hmm. of the vibe. I I actually wasn't working that Mm. day. Someone went sick and called in Mm. sick. So I had a phone call. My shift would have started about two o'clock and I had a call about sort of five o'clock and said, please, can you come in? It's like Saturday night. You know, we got 200 on the books and we're we're one man down and no one's running this section. So um, I grew up in the business, so, you know, you can't, you know, my wife was like, no, 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 because it was the first night we'd had off together in a long time. Yeah. And she she worked there as well. But I went in and did the shift and that's when the crew were there and kind of thought nothing of it. They were just in my way and they were a pain (laughs) in the ass, to be honest. Um, it It was a very tight kitchen and I was kind of, I was pushing... Uh, them out the way and they were asking questions and and I was on what was called HOTS 2 which was like risotto, pastas, Mm -hmm. raviolis and we also had the frito misto and the slow cook dishes on that so Mm. basically it's really exciting really interesting really quick dishes Mm -hmm. so now as a TV producer of sort of 22 Mm -hmm. years I know I know exactly what happened there's certain recipes in cooking that are always tough to cut tough to to Mm -hmm. make sort of exciting mm-hmm. and the ladies were doing bolito misto which is a it's quite laborious to mm-hmm. cut yeah. and to make and it's not really relevant to most people's homes right. mm-hmm. whereas and then to the editor i know what's happening the editor went oh my god how am i going to cut around <laughs> this we need a little bit of this and the other yeah so um so i was sort of starting and finishing sort of tagliatelle recipes in about two and a half minutes frito meter you know lovely frito misto seasonal veggies like beautiful whole shoulders of pork yeah so it, i was just very lucky really i was kind of in a rush, very focused, very young. And I did know what I was doing. I was, I was quite lucky. Like for a 21-year-old, I was mm-hmm. probably more able than most because I've been cooking mm-hmm. such a long time. Yeah. I guess being able and fluent with your hands and looking 
like a child <laughs> um, was quite unusual. It was quite unusual. So I think that's, that's what caused me to get um, noticed. But nothing actually happened for about another six months. Right. Really? Um, yeah. It's, and it's I, kind of like the classic understudy thing. You know, you, you're going in there a kid, you're coming out a star kind of situation. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a bit weird. I mean, the show didn't go out for six months and then the next day the phone calls came. Huh. And, um, and, and true story, so... Um, the general manager um, mm -hmm. was a very funny guy. Um, and he, like, before lunchtime service the next day, he phoned up on the internal phone mm -hmm. and pretended to be from the BBC and had <laughs> me <laughs> hook, line, and sense, you know. Because uh, I, I didn't know. Everyone was telling me they'd seen me, and I was, like, throughout the whole show. And I, I, I'd been, I was working the night before, so I'd never seen it go out. Um, and then I could hear him laughing, and I realised he'd stitched me up. Um, but then in the middle of service, mm -hmm. the receptionist put three phone calls oh from producers, God. different independent production companies. Really? And the one I actually went with, which was Optimum TV, um, I don't know if you can broadcast this, but I told him to go and stick his own head up his own ass. <laughs> uh, and, 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 um, and I said terrible things to him because I thought it was my friend. <laughs> You know, you know, and it was, and then this poor man, this poor man at the end of the phone was like, no, 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 I, I was just trying to see that if maybe we could meet and maybe we could sort of do a pilot and then maybe get a commission. And then I realised then when he said the word pilot and commission, I, I knew that that wasn't the language, that wasn't our language. And I, I realised that I'd just told some potentially life-changing, <laughs> nice, decent, well-educated man to go, to go and screw off things where they really shouldn't be stuck. And, um... Yeah, but that was the kind of beginning. And then interestingly, we were, we were with Channel 4 for nine months and mm -hmm. they passed on it. And mm. then Mark Thompson, who now runs the New York Times, mm -hmm. commissioned me in a week. Wow. Which again, is very, that's very unheard right. of. Right. And is that how you got um, to America on The Naked Chef? The Naked Chef, yeah, we kind of, I think like two years in, mm. the book had gone mm -hmm. mad around the yeah. world. It was a bestseller. I kind of been made quite famous quite quickly. And there were reasons for that, by the way. I think if you look back at the tear sheets of, of the magazines and mm -hmm. newspapers, it was generally driven by female journalists mm -hmm. because rightfully so, they were kind of pissed off with the kind of attitude towards the men at the time, mm -hmm. which was kind of like men and women were going to work and they both get home at like seven, eight o'clock at night and the fellas around Britain were saying, what's for dinner? Uh -huh. and, yeah. and they were like, just a minute, if this child can knock out like a meal, <laughs> then surely you can have a go. So it was definitely a moment about getting men back in the kitchen and definitely we achieved that. Right. Yeah. And, and if I did like demonstrations, you know, it went quite big quite quickly. So we went from like two, three, four hundred people in an audience to sort of under 3,000 3, mm. people in an audience doing demos, you know, four times a day for a week. Was that a hard transition? Was that Massive, difficult? yeah. Terrible. I mean, I literally went from being demonstrating the year before mm -hmm. the show went out to like 30 people and their dog and yeah, being yeah. over time and not really understanding what it was all about. And then within a year, there was like four shows a day, 2,800 people a day, five days and just wild and and I and I was like throwing up in the toilets and just you know so I was in, it messed with I your head in, right yeah I, I was in bits wow. I was in bits and actually yeah. there was a brigade of TV chefs mm -hmm. that were quite well dug in for like 10, 15, 20 years mm. and they didn't really like me coming mm. in because I was the new mm -hmm. thing and often journalists if they weren't being very generous would use me against them mm -hmm. or use me to to contrast them so that yeah. wasn't very nice but in I remember throwing up several times through nerves because yeah. yeah. there was like 
so many thousands of people in, the, in, a, in an auditorium. Wow. And I just didn't think I could do mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And um, there was one chap called Brian Turner who was an old school TV guy and he just sat me down and had a nice bucket and put a handkerchief and put it around my neck and just sort of <laughs> gave me a proper talking to and said, you can do it. And, and it's funny, I went out there and um, I just told them that I need them to be aware that I could run off at any moment. Oh. That's because so it was smart, too much. but it's a way of giving yourself permission. And if they were cool with that, then I would give it my best shot. And how old were you then? You were a kid. 24. <sighs> it, was, it, was, it was hard. That has but, to be. And it was so funny because it was... It was um, because it was a Birmingham good food show, so it's like thirty six thousand uh, people there a day. It's like big, yeah. it's busy. Right. Yeah, but um, there's like there was an old famous security firm that used to do all the Hollywood stuff, all the red carpets, all the most famous A listers, the films, everything. And he was known as Judge Jerry, and he he was famous for being the man for security. And he'd got the new job doing the Birmingham good food show. He'd done my wedding at that stage, and I oh. said to him, "Listen, dude, I know it's just a cooking show." but this is wild. He's like, oh, don't you worry about me. I've been doing this 20 years. Don't you worry. I said, no, honestly, mate, we have to be really careful how we move because there's waves of people and like people get knocked over and you've got to look out for the sort of older people and blah, blah, blah. He's like, don't, don't you worry about that. Anyway, by midday, he'd been arrested <laughs> for oh, knocking really? someone out. <laughs> right. And like, it was just, it's, it's funny. It was, it's an amazing, it's in the middle of Britain and I don't know what the equivalent in, in America is, but it's in Birmingham mm -hmm. and you get a little bit of everyone from Britain there. And it was a real celebration of food, but I had to learn quite quick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and again, it sort of gave, it was my opportunity to, demonstrations were very, uh, how can I say, um, protocol, this is how you mm -hmm. do it, this is how you must do it. And I'm mm -hmm. like, no, 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 I'm not having any mm -hmm. of that. This is going to be, we're going to do crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we, had, we were pulling people out of the audiences, we were setting up single couples, we had, you know, tables <laughs> coming out of the sky and, and I'd cook and then feed people. Right. Uh -huh. We had like thousands of pounds of like gadgets and toys and holidays to Australia uh, to give wow. away. It was like the, a, a mixture between the Price is Right and some <laughs> terrible daytime <laughs> game show. Yeah, that was... That was a long time ago now, but... Was it the process of being put in front of this general audience that sort of turned you less toward like fine dining and cooking for the fine dining audience and more thinking about home cooks and home cooking? Because, you know, you could have gone that other way and just been the fine yeah. dining guy. Mm. I've, I mean, I respect fine dining and, and, and once in a blue moon, I'll go to those special places for a special experience but it's not really my thing right. like it ain't my it ain't my style of music if you know what i mean mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so i was more always about really good rustic simple food but also i think um the women that were really changing the way my brain was working were well they were all women mm. so that so um, alice waters stephanie alexander you know marcella hazan mm -hmm. patricia wales um elizabeth david rose gray ruth rogers i mean the list goes mm -hmm. on like, like extraordinary women that write beautifully and um were strong in their own ways and and didn't and, and i think like as a young man as well like i was very conscious about ego and how that shows itself as a cook mm -hmm. mm. and, and a communicator and and of course everyone has ego and i was desperately trying to open myself up to thinking a bit more like a woman and I, and I know that sounds like a strange thing to say but like mm. like if you if you analyze a lot of chefs particularly mm -hmm. and men and famous male chefs a lot of what we do and what we're trained to do is about control and dominance ordering stuff yeah. 
control. Like, yep. you know, it, it, would be, it would mean nothing to get on the phone and order 60 racks of lamb, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, damn, that's, that's like 30 animals. Right. Yeah. Like, how about using one whole animal? Like, you know, like, like, so the men weren't on, they weren't on that mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. You know, and certainly Alice Waters and, and Rose Grey Ruth Rogers, they were utilising whole beasts. Mm-hmm. And even if they weren't butchering things correctly, they were utilising everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, as, as I, <laughs> I mean, I've spent quite a few years travelling around Italy and, and about five or six years ago, spent two and a half years cooking with nonnas around sort of 90 to over 100. Mm-hmm. And... They're cooking this incredible food and technically they're cutting things wrong. But what does that mean? Right. Like, yeah, if, what if is wrong? Yeah, what is wrong? So, okay, so instead of cutting everything accurately, which is control again, they're cutting things in the means they have, but all erratically. And so what does that give you? It means you have some stuff in a base or a stew or, or some kind of fricassee or whatever you're doing that is mushy, mm-hmm. which is flavour right. and more caramelisation and, and, and chunks so you're kind of like, it, when everything's equal, you just get cooked stuff. <laughs> you don't have all the, right. do you know what I mean? So I yeah. think uh, it takes a while to work out that there's no such thing as wrong. It's just, is there good intention? Is it thoughtful? Is it sensitive? Is it delicious? Is, is there waste? Yeah. 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 And I think kind of in my own little geeky way, and of course I appreciate all the men that I've worked with, but I've, there's, still, there's still not enough women in the, in the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. I remember I, I, I opened this restaurant called Barbacoa. Yeah. I don't know. It must be like 11 years ago now or something. It was like the first, like we had no gas or electricity. It was just like all mm. wood, wood mainly. Yeah. And we had all kinds of vessels of cooking from around the world. Yeah, I went there uh, actually. And I had, oh, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> it was in a cool spot, wasn't it? Saint, at St. Saint Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. And um, we had 46 chefs and about 40% women, and uh, which is high. And I just read a... a, a piece of history around like how actually back in the day it was I'm going back you know thousands and thousands of years it was the women that cooked Mm. and had the control of fire Mm -hmm. and respected fire and had because I'm I'm a massive softie and I I think there's something in us right like fire is like and water I I just believe that there's an understand there's something genetic in us that we I don't know I'm being a hippie now but (laughs) I I do believe I'm I'm totally (laughs) with you because it was the first restaurant of its kind we lost all the male chefs in two weeks. Wow. Did you really? We only had about two left. And why and was we that? Were, because these vessels that we were cooking from were so kind of crude and, and this, like no one was doing mm-hmm. this in London at the time. Like, yeah. you know, uh, like, like proper tandors and, mm. and um, like smokers and ash pits and, and robatas and like, we had to have one person just managing fire. But of course, we're trained to have like gas or electric and it's yeah. but- high, low buttons, numbers, one, two, three. And because the control had been taken away <laughs> and it was more instinct, right. like mm-hmm. using the hairs burning on your arms and, yeah. and, and the heat, like how can you bear it right? That's about right. And, you know, moving coals and cinders around, yeah. um, it freaked all the boys out. They left. <laughs> That's I just interesting. Read, I just written. I just read this thing about how it was always the women, and then I sat there in my kitchen, just surrounded by girls, and I'm like, maybe it's true. <laughs> they, were, they, they were right, but I think anyway. I think I think for me to be a rounded cook, it's about being open to sensibilities from. Mm-hmm. the sexes but also yeah. like ethnicities and, and travel and all those things so it's right. I've enjoyed that very much 
The next sort of pivot in your career, you did Jamie's Kitchen and you were training children from under-resourced neighborhoods to cook. And then that was followed by school dinners. What is it in your own life that made you really sensitive to issues of like food insecurity and poverty and, you know, children's health? Like how did that become a passion for you? I think it was like I was never a campaigner. I was never political as as a kid or teenager or, or frankly, adult until I started um, 15. And 15 was like, and, and I mean this really sincerely, by the way, and, 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 and certainly at the time, no one really believed me, but it was true. I went from being skint to, frankly, being a millionaire really quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't earn it the public chose to give it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I just had a huge problem with it. Of course I was pleased because, yeah. you know, I was young and, and, and but we were always like in the red every mm-hmm. week and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I genuinely was uncomfortable with mm-hmm. it and it wasn't really how I was brought up as a child. Like dad, had, he, dad never earned an easy pound. Right. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't very, he was like, what's going This I'm not sure about mm-hmm. all this. Mm-hmm. Um, so... And I was young, enthusiastic. I have got a romantic <laughs> issue, um, and I just, I just, and I'd had a pretty rough time at school. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I just read. I just thought, fuck it. I, I wanted to do yeah. it. Um, I wanted to. And the truth is, I wanted to. I could, and I did. Right. Yeah. And and I was naive, and I was stupid. But it's. It, but to this day, it's probably one of the best things I've ever done. Wow. And that is most responsible for creating the Jamie that there is today, mm-hmm. because it made me. A proportion of our kids came from prison homeless mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah. and or, or just lost in the system of education somewhere and that sort of skin on skin sort of connection just changed me right. and I'm sure even with yourselves like in your job you're exposed to things that most normal people wouldn't necessarily see mm-hmm. in the food system or in food and food banks and this and that and the other and it does it changes mm-hmm. you it, it sort of and when you talk about things down the pub or the bar or, the, you know, the family table, like your view's different because you've felt it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so I think I um, then started thinking about this idea of rehabilitation mm-hmm. like and, and forms of it. So, you know, can you take a kid from a life of crime mm-hmm. and can you, can you reshape them to have skills and be an asset to the community and themselves and their future partners right. and kids? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a line where some people have gone too far. But, but for, the, for the large majority of people that go through the prison system, there is hope mm-hmm. and there is, there is, if they're given passion. And I mean, you know, and, and just like in America, there's patterns in the UK with fatherless homes, mm-hmm. which you can't deny. You might mm-hmm. not like the data, but you can't deny mm-hmm. it. So having really strong role, male role models in a trade mm. for those boys was really powerful. And then interestingly for the girls, from my own observations, they responded really well to training. And there's like an invisible ceiling that somehow all the girls would feel mm. around empowerment oh. and dominance and, and confidence and the ability to smash it. Yeah, And you have to sort of concentrate to see it. But like... And it hit me a few times and then we'd work with those girls to get beyond it. And they'd always, mm-hmm. they'd be like running the kitchens like clockwork. Mm. But if you don't catch them at the right stage mm-hmm. and empower them to power through the sticky bit, mm-hmm. they'd often run mm. and leave. So I found that really fascinating. So boys were a bit cocksure, do you know what I yeah. mean? They were yeah. kind of yeah. like cocky and the girls were the opposite. And they're both 
they both have they both have issues. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, that, that's part of the reason we don't see enough girls in the work mm. in the kitchens, um, mm-hmm. along with you know behaviour and flexible hours mm-hmm. and, and um, the ability to you know, if women are incredible, bosses need to know that it's normal to be flexible mm-hmm. so you keep them right because <laughs> what we what we would do is we'd lose them and then they come back sort of three or four years later right. yeah um but anyway that that was the kind of catalyst really for the the campaigner that you know today yeah, yeah. now we are going to get to the book i promise but i am so fascinated by your idea of social concern and the idea that you stuck to your roots how how does that butt up against people like Marco Pierre White and and Gordon Ramsay? I mean, there's been some dissing, I guess, back and forth or from them. You know, where there's the destruction on some of these guys. They just couldn't handle it or just this polished Hollywood view. And yet you're staying here. You're remaining true to your your roots and who you are. How does that play in that food world? And how did you manage to become as big as you are? as wealthy as you are, yeah. and still remain what I can see and what I've watched in your career, you. Look, it's, it's an interesting one. Each to their own, right? Um, look, if I can be coarse and crass about it, mm. if you think of all the chefs you can think of and then total up all of their book sales, like, I've smashed that, mm. mm-hmm. right? So that, it's like a vote. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. You, can, you can get lucky once or twice, but like other than the kind of the talents involved in a really good rigorous book mm-hmm. that's a beautiful product maybe a wonderful gift it could be something that takes you away and 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 teaches you really geeky cool things and history and nostalgia and history or it could be a solution book like one it's a vote mm-hmm. and that's how i look at it so in the old days, I did a lot of book signings and a lot of demos mm-hmm. and a lot of chatting. And now we have social media that's very efficient mm-hmm. at that. And if you listen to your public and if you listen to what worries them and what inspires them and what pisses them off, then there's no way you can take that and the vote and not... I, I, I genuinely don't want to do most of the campaigns that I do. Mm. Mm. And then they're, they're never often pleasurable. And it often gets me in a lot of trouble mm-hmm. and it makes my life much more complicated and my mm-hmm. family's life much more com- complicated. And and generally as a race, human race, like we hate change. Mm-hmm. Like people want people to stand up for things, but then they find it annoying as well. So yeah. you, you, you start becoming kind of, you know, you start to divide people, but I've tried to navigate it the best I can. I've got it right most of the time because I've stayed true to the conversations and the causes and, and, and the things that are important. Mm-hmm. But I'm also really fascinated about people mm-hmm. and towns and cities and countries. And that doesn't just stop at Britain. It's, it's also yours as well. Like, yeah. I'm fascinated by the way we had an amazing, like, very respected independent study done in Britain. I would put money on it translates here in the States as well. Basically what we did, it was the argument of should we have free school lunches and breakfasts Mm -hmm. for really, really poor families and really poor kids. And basically they look at a whole bunch of kind of factors and they basically prove that, this is in Britain, over Mm -hmm. a 10-year period it makes 9 billion, makes 9 billion for our economy. Mm. And, you know, if you times that by six, it's probably going to get close to, so we're talking about like sort of probably like 55 billion in mm-hmm. the States. Mm-hmm. And um, so this idea that everything's charity mm-hmm. or a cost 
or should they, shouldn't they? And, and I think so. It's really, and so I'm fascinated by, not, not actually, but kind of poverty is almost hereditary. Mm -hmm. It's almost genetic. And of course it's not genetic, right. but it's almost hereditary in the sense of to escape from that is a whole bunch of things, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. And, um, you know, the, the poorest communities, uh, you know, have less access to fresh right. food. They're, they have much more junk food advertising. Yeah. Um, often they're paying more for, you know, whether right. it's electricity or yeah. on, on yes. sort of pay-as-you-go meters or sort mm -hmm. of like mobile phones. Like, so I'm fascinated by how a good meal resulting in a better education mm -hmm. allows and gives hope mm -hmm. to more kids to get out Mm -hmm. of where their parents, parents, parents mm -hmm. probably came from. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and ultimately, what does that mean? It means fairness. So in theory, in America and Britain, if you put your head down and graft, you, and the sky's the mm -hmm. limit. I mean, that's the American dream, and certainly that's the British dream as well. But if you look at the kind of geographical, social, economic factors around, I, mean, I, I love mm -hmm. it. And mm -hmm. the reason I get into it and I get into massive detail on it is because, you know, if you've taken a kid from prison that's a pain in the ass and used to bash people up for a living and, you know, go drug dealing and how do you take that talent of violence and accountancy through selling gear and, and drugs? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, do, how do you get them to break down a wild salmon into right. different cuts and, and sort of utilise the whole creature and, and mm -hmm. be wowed by it? Some of my students were earning like 1,200 quid a week. Right. Really? Being a criminal. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was paying them. I mean, no one gets paid to go to university or college, but I was paying them 280 pounds. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> Instead wow. of like 1,200. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> they made a choice, yes. And, and interestingly, which is controversially maybe, um, the most important thing I had to do was create enough inspiration and busyness to create enough tiredness to keep them out of trouble mm. and ideally mm. keep them away from family and friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Which were, tip, which were typically the problem. Right. Yes. And then I, I never really understood that you could have jealousy amongst parents oh, and yeah. children. I, I never thought that could exist. And really divided That's loyalties it, yeah. too, like guilt about yeah. leaving and yeah. all of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. Who yes. do you think you are? Yeah. Oh, now you've had a bit of training with that, that geezer Oliver. Like, you, you know, like, like, come back in here and go and get yeah. a bottle of vodka like you did the last two years. Yeah. You know, exactly. and it's so, I mean, and I'm not even, I'm, I'm actually quoting verbatim. Right. <laughs> so it's really interesting. But I mean, I think ultimately it's a story of hope. Yeah. And a story of maybe how much deeper food goes. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I know we know farming, good farmers, mm -hmm. the soil, regenerative agriculture, like farmers markets, mm -hmm. production of cheese and beers <laughs> and blah, 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 blah. No, it's all good stuff. But like there's more, right. there's much, much more and mm -hmm. it goes deeper. And the way that one part of America that handles something correctly mm -hmm. in food and one that doesn't, mm -hmm. like how that affects what it means to be from that area mm -hmm. and culture mm -hmm. and, you know, it's kind of like a culinary flag. Right. Or a culinary football team, you know, yeah. it's like, but invisible. Well, I think that's one reason we all love food is it's this lens through which you access the entire human experience. It's everything through food. You can access it all. And uh, and I don't want to let you go before we just talk a bit about the new book because, you know, yeah. that's what that's what you've got going Thank on you. right now. Um, so this For is sure. your 26th cookbook um, yep. and it's 
<laughs> it's I, David and I were joking that this book is made for us because it's we both admit we're admittedly messy cooks, Terrible. and this is for sort of one dish cooking. It's a solution mm. for people like us. How is this yeah. book inspired by your own life or your take on what people need today? Yeah, I think it should have really been called the minimum washing up cookbook, <laughs> but it just didn't have a ring to it. Yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> That's just the interesting thing about like books. Like you can have a few different flavors of Jamie and, and in this particular flavor of Jamie, it's like I wanted to write the most user-friendly, easy to use cookbook that I've ever written based on all the experiences of 26 books. Mm-hmm. I locked myself in a room and one, having less washing up mm-hmm. was the kind of holy grail. Mm-hmm. Um, then I just kind of invented all these rules that I believe that everything I'd learned in the last year studying geeky data. Mm-hmm. You know, not what people are saying, because that often lies, like what is in people's baskets yeah. mm-hmm. in their supermarket every week. Right. Because that's truth. So I had like never more than eight ingredients. I love that. Um, You know, cover the rainbow in breakfast, brunch, lunch, dinner, some sweet treats, some batch cooking. Cover the kind of proteins that are typically part of a normal shop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You'll see chicken thighs and legs Mm -hmm. really available, often on discount, sort of like often in the basket, Mm -hmm. salmon fillets. So nothing like super glamorous, but like at the same time, people are getting bored of the same old, same old. So like, right, let let me work on that. And then also I want it to be an everyday book. So it can't just be indulgent. indulgent. If I throw cheese and cream on everything, it's going to taste great. With a few croutons of crispy bacon, like bingo, bango, bongo, great. But (laughs) like my job is to be super clever. I mean, I trained in nutrition. So like I know that good nutrition is about what you can have, not what you can't have. So in the book, there will be indulgence. In the book, there's humble. Uh, In the book, there's flash. Um, In the book, there is loads, a vast majority of everyday recipes that will make you thrive and, and, and not pull you back into a place that's negative. At that point, I haven't even written a recipe. Mm-hmm. So this kind of book is, is very hard to write. And then once I've written it, we test a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then look, hopefully the end product is that it's really easy to mm-hmm. use. Well, I can say that it is because we have 150 recipe testers and the recipes that we chose uh, was the orange tray bake and also the sausage okay. pepper deli. Oh, beautiful. Through the roof. Yeah. Loved it. Oh, really Just nice. Loved yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. I mean, yeah. that's so nice that you did that. And and it's funny because um, you'd be amazed how many cookbooks um, haven't been tested. Right. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. 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 We know. So, uh, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> we so, reject a lot of cookbooks on the site because they don't work. We yeah. try them and they just don't work. Yeah. And things don't tally. And it's so we work really hard on it. And again, like you, you can fake a like. And mm-hmm. you can fake a comment and you can fake a view. Like, yes. I mean, not, not necessarily fake it per se, but what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, if it's free, probably nothing. Right. But you can't fake a book sale. So right. this book is doing really well. So that, I mean, that's not me being sort of smug. It's me saying, oh, I, I think I might hit mm-hmm. the spot here. Like mm-hmm. the time, and it's interesting, like timing's another thing. Like, you know, if I had written this book five years ago, it's probably more relevant now. Why do you um, think that is? I think post-pandemic is a big one, right? Yeah. 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 So just to get into one nuts and bolts aspect of the book, I love the fried pasta chapter because this is a technique I learned in California and I thought it was the most brilliant thing, but it really hasn't caught on. So tell our audience about the yeah. joys of fried pasta. Or frying pan pasta, sorry. It's not fried pasta. Yeah, frying pan pasta. Yeah, no, look, it's, it's not traditional, first of all. 
But actually, I mean, interestingly, the latest TV show I've been working on has been going around the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of the joys of that has been looking at non-Italian pasta dishes mm. that are considered authentic to them. It's really interesting. But basically, in every supermarket in Britain, not so much over here, but what we do have is fresh pasta mm -hmm. in all the supermarkets. Mm -hmm. I just cooked it up and it was like um, eight minutes. Right. And then one pan, one pan to wipe out. Yeah. So, and it was like, okay, so it's not traditional. Because I, I mean, I, I take Italy seriously. So I know that the nonnas will come and get right. me. Um, so <laughs> it's like, okay, just a minute. So there is a narrative for not having the water pan. Like there's less washing up. Right. Mm -hmm. One hob, you know, we're in the cost of living crisis and energy is a fortune at the moment. So actually the hob's looking pretty good economically. Mm -hmm. We're using one pan. But actually when you're cooking this fresh pasta in the pan, it's cooking in like three, four minutes. Right. But also it's absorbing the flavor of the sauce. Right. right. Not absorbing the flavor of often under-seasoned water. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, this is damn good. So I just, I just carried on cooking and wrote a whole chapter yeah. on it. And if you flick through the book now, you'll see like shape, size, I mean, colour, yeah. mm -hmm. like combinations. So I'm like, damn, I, I showed my kids it, the ones at um, 18 and 19-year-old at uni. And they're like, oh, my dad, wow, that's amazing. So <laughs> like in eight minutes, they can kind of get a delicious meal right. that's homemade, that's, you know, got a little bit of something about it. Um, no, it's not authentic, but it is delicious. And it's definitely got some of the, the love and soul of Italian thinking through it. It's interesting. I looked online and I'm like, Dan, this hasn't kicked off, just like you said, Amy. Yeah, yeah. And um, what had kicked off like over like the last four years was using spaghetti. You put it in a pan and then yeah. you just load the pan and then you pour yeah. your tinned tomatoes. But because of the dry pasta, it's very limited. Yeah. In if you look on the internet, they're all red. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. They, they actually take ages to cook. Pasta cooks quicker in water than it does in tomato juice. Right. Mm -hmm. But fresh pasta is so generous. So, and again, it's interesting when you look at all budgets and all types of customer, even for people that struggle on budgets, which you wouldn't expect, convenience trumps price. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. More than often. Because we're yep. so tired. <laughs> they, yeah. So, and, and, and if you really look at it, like you'll see people buying pre-mashed potatoes instead of right. potatoes yeah, at do. a tenth of the price. Right. Yep. And then look, there's loads of reasons for that. Yeah, I think my job as, as an author is to try and curate ducking and diving to keep cooking alive. And I'm, I'm not even being dramatic. I think mm. if, I, I can only talk about the, the, the UK, but often we track similarly together. Mm -hmm. But um, basket data tells us that people are cooking less now than before COVID. Oh, yeah. and, huh. and before COVID was some of the worst in the last three decades. So Interesting. Um, this, this idea that authoring, uh, teaching, cooking, I mean, like it's, it's a walk in the park. It's not mm -hmm. like, we, it's like a rare breed. Mm -hmm. Cooks mm -hmm. are rare breeds, and also when people say, "Yeah, I cook," like well, you have to dig deeper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what does America. that mean? Well, I went I, when I when I went to Huntington, West Virginia. Everyone cooked, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I don't even need to be here. Like everyone cooks. It's like, well, can you show me what you mean, cook? Mm. And so, like reheating stuff in the microwave, mm -hmm. not yeah, cooking. Like assembly. So, um, yeah. Not that I judge that at right. all. It's just like, what does it mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I'm a great believer that the more cooks you have in a community or or a nation. By default, they, they strike up different relationships with suppliers. They ask different questions. They expect more. Mm. They're more inquisitive. Mm -hmm. They're more reflective of their geography and they're healthier. And the closer you get people to cooking and mud, the more they thrive. Yeah. And the further you take them away from that, the kind of more generic and lost and ill mm. everyone seems to get. I mean, I could look at my career in the last 25 years and go, well, 
certainly on the British data, people spent twice as much t- time cooking mm. than now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's less people cooking. So theoretically, I'm a failure. Right. And all of my colleagues that are involved in yeah. magazines and books right. and TV shows. but And you could say, well, you're a failure or we're a failure. But in this book, I'm just trying to, I'm really just trying to find an excuse for you to cook mm-hmm. instead of create a barrier for you. The barrier to not cooking is risk. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll try and take that away. Lack of clarity. Well, I'll give you the clarity. Too many ingredients. Well, we'll cap it at mm-hmm. eight. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make me ill. No, no, there'll be plenty of good stuff. Right. It's mm-hmm. not indulgent enough. We've got indulgent, don't you know? So it's, I'm just trying to take away the barrier so that someone just goes, okay, I'm going to give it a go. Right, right. I want to ask you, I think, a really important question. What do you consider to be your biggest contribution to the world? I wouldn't ask this of most people, honestly. Um, if there is a contribution that I've given to the world of food or around food, it's the sort of rolling your sleeves up and getting amongst it, getting stuck in. Early days, I didn't just stay with the production company. I did The Naked Chef. Like, I started my own production company. And you would say, well, why? It's like, well, I wanted to put the the value on the screen. That's a great one-liner that everyone says, but I really did. Mm -hmm. And we didn't need to make a margin out of that programming we could invest it in better people better cameras mm. better lenses and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and being a dyslexic kid like touch and feel and like i wanted to i wanted to see and show you food how i saw it through my eye the human eye mm-hmm. not just like a lens mm-hmm. right. so like you know i mean literally some of it was scientific and some of it wasn't like you know I wanted you to be in the oven. So what did I do? I got a saw and I cut the oven in half mm-hmm. and I put bullet, bulletproof glass on it and then I put a camera in it and that's how we got that wow. shot. Right. I, wanted, I wanted you to see how that was caramelising. So I cut the pan in half. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so um, hopefully, to answer your question, hopefully I've shown that you don't have to be stuck in a box. Mm. Like you can be curious, you can try things, you can fail. Yeah. I've failed plenty, by the way, and, and in, in front of the public. Mm. Um, thrived and failed and I think other people have have also done that and I think that's a really healthy attitude to have because mm-hmm. um, ultimately what we're all doing is storytelling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. yeah and trying to keep cooking alive right yeah but that was a very long answer to a very simple question <laughs> it's a very complicated question and deep question but Jamie thank you so much thank for coming you. on the show we hope we can have you again best of luck with the book yeah we're so thank excited so about it we love what you do thank you lots of love guys Jamie Oliver is a chef and activist whose 20-year television and publishing career has inspired millions to enjoy cooking from scratch and eating fresh, delicious food. Through his many campaigns and Emmy Award-winning Jamie's Food Revolution TV series, he aims to improve everyone's health and happiness through food and cooking. His latest cookbook, One, is on sale today, wherever you buy books. Talking With My Mouthful is produced by Over It Studios, and our producer is the not one fan, but always deadpan, Adam Claremont. <laughs> you can reach Adam and Over It Studios at overitstudios.com. Remember to follow Talking With My Mouthful wherever you download your favorite podcasts. As always, if you like what you hear and want to support us, leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. We will see you next time. Ciao. 
There's no chow? Oh! No. Okay. okay. Who no, are gonna, you uh, even? I forgot. Forgot. <laughs> it's not on the script. My God. Ugh. Yes, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so I didn't see that deadpan. That's very good, Amy. Very clever. Very clever. <laughs>